We are in Acts 27 this morning. With navigational aids on our phones, it's, it's not often that we find ourselves fully lost, uh, not knowing where we are, not knowing what direction to go in. Sometimes those navigational aids will take us in wrong paths, but we still generally can find our way out, we still generally know where we are. My one experience of, of just being completely lost about five years ago, and I, I'm not a big international traveler. When I travel, it's usually because my daughter's in some running event. Five years ago, I was in Bulgaria, landed there. She was um, running in a mountain running race, and so it was, it was in a remote area of, of the country, um, area that was kind of known for a ski resort in the winter, but it wasn't that time of year, so there wasn't much traffic or people at all. I landed at night. Um, got in the rental car, had about a 90-minute drive, and didn't take long at all to realize that what I was counting on was not navigating anymore. It was showing me where I was, but it wasn't showing me where I was going. And so it was trying to stop and find internet along the way, and then screenshot the map and sort of try to follow those those screenshots. And and it was supposed to be about a 90-minute drive. It was a couple of hours later. On found the place after numerous wrong turns on some dirt road that would make our dirt roads look like highways, uh, and this was a hotel, you know, and it, was, it turned out to be a nice hotel, a great place to spend the night, but it was just that feeling of being at night and knowing you're somewhere where you don't speak the language, you're trying to use Google Translate to see if you can read the signs, you, you're just struggling to figure out where you are and how to get where you're going, that sense of being really lost. Have you ever been lost at night? In a storm, even, in bad weather, and you can barely see your hand in front of you. You can barely know where the, the next turnoff is, where the sign is, where the direction is, and it gets unsettling and even terrifying. Well, Acts chapter 27. And this morning, we're going to follow the Apostle Paul on this incredible journey. This will go from, from the east in Caesarea, up north, and then the goal is to get all the way to the far northwestern corner there to Rome on that map. Um, this is a remarkable journey across the Mediterranean and the Adriatic Seas. Um, should, under the best of conditions, be about a five-week trip. Uh, this was not that sort of ideal conditions. And for someone going from Judea to Rome, this was for them in that day the, the, the feeling of heading to the end of the earth. I mean, as far as you could tell, this was, this was the end of civilization. This was as far as you would anticipate ever traveling. Acts 27.1 says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So there's the, there's the launching point. This is the fall of either 59 or more likely 60 of, of, of that year. Paul has been in Caesarea, we know, for two-plus years. He has been imprisoned there. No, no charges that stick against him. There's no crime that they can discern that he has carried out. Um, but he has been held there under Governors Felix and Governor Festus, Largely and unjustly, Felix trying to earn a bribe in some way, Festus trying to satisfy the Jewish population and willing to have Paul tried in front of the Jews. Paul sees the injustice in that, knows that this is going to get worse. Also, Paul knows that God has 
determined for him, has said to him that you are going to Rome. And so with those two factors, the injustice under Festus and the determination of getting to Rome, when he is given the opportunity, Paul appeals his case to Caesar. He takes the opportunity to, to at, at least for a moment here as a prisoner, to chart his own course and to find his way to Rome. And so he is off to Rome. He is under the watch of a Roman centurion named Julius. We see here that there are other prisoners not unusual in the Roman Empire for them to take convicted violent criminals and to bring them to Rome, either as slaves or as entertainment in the Colosseum. Um, and so Julius is the centurion who's in charge. Um, we will see as, as the journey goes on that this is uh, a vessel that is basically being paid for at this point in, in terms of rent, lease, if you will, by the Roman Empire. And, and so Julius will become the man in charge and making some decisions. Um, Julius um, it seems to be amenable to, to, to Paul at points, but then we'll also see where he, he goes against Paul. A lot of references to we throughout this, and so the presumption is that Luke is along on this journey, and then also we'll see in this passage Aristarchus, who is from Thessalonica, who is a traveling companion that we first met of Paul's back in chapter 19. Um, Paul will reference, it seems to be the same man, that Paul will reference him when he writes to the Colossians, and he calls Aristarchus his fellow prisoner. First ship they get on goes north. It goes along that, that far eastern coast, along the coast of what would have been Judea and then Syria, and, and then turns west and goes around the island of Cyprus. According to verse 5, they finally made port in the city of Mira, which is in Lycia. The end of that first westernmost arrow is where they, they change ships there at Mira. Verse 6 tells us they, they changed ships to one that was based in Alexandria, one that was from Egypt. Again, Roman Empire often would have grain that was bought in Egypt that's brought up to Rome, um, not exactly the, the fertile plain up there, and so they, they buy grain from Egypt. And, and so the travelers get on board what is largely a cargo ship. There's no real passenger travel at this point. It, you rent space on a cargo ship, and so that's what they do. There's 276 passengers altogether, to, including the crew, I should say, that we'll find that out a little bit later on in the text. Uh, but they board this ship and they begin to head toward Italy. Historians estimate this kind of ship would be about 180 feet long, roughly 2,000 tons, give or take. So it is a large vessel. It is late in the sailing season. We're already into fall, and so this is not the ideal time. So if you pick up with me then down in verse 7. Acts 27, verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canidas. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. All right. If you look back on the map one more time, the trip from Mira to Canidas, about 130 miles. Should have been about two days. Luke explains they already began to run into difficulty. They're already hitting headwinds, and so it's, it's going slower. And so the captain takes the ship south to Crete, and they are going to go beneath Crete, south of Crete, with the idea that the winds coming from the north, that the island, very mountainous, will buffet some of that and should make the sailing a little bit easier. And so they go to the south side of Crete. When it says the lee of Crete, it's the leeward side, windward, leeward. If you think of 
Um, we'll get off nautical for just a moment. You think of the Shenandoah mountain range, the windward side generally is the western side where the wind is coming in. The sheltered side would be the leeward side. So the idea is we're taking the, the lee of Crete, we're trying to take what we think is the sheltered side from the direction that the wind is coming, the mountains being some sort of buffeting force. So they go south of Crete and they sail halfway across the, the bottom of the island there, verse nine. They're in fair havens. It says, since much, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and then spend the winter there. All right, consider the timing here. When he says the fast has, has already gone past, that is the, the, the Jewish Day of Atonement. That's just another name for describing the Day of Atonement, which is generally late September, early October. We know from, from what folks tell us, historians who've looked at the, the, the maritime issues, that mid-September to early November was considered the dangerous season. You could still sail, but you were at risk in doing so, and then usually... By early November, they would stop trying to sail across the Mediterranean and the Adriatic just because it came too dangerous. And there was about three months when there would be no shipping during that time. So this is a critical point in the trip. They, they've already come to the conclusion that we are not going to make it to Italy before winter. Things have gone so slowly in the western, westward part of the trip um, that they are now midway across Crete, trying to decide where do we spend the winter? Where are we going to spend then these next three, maybe four months hold up? And so the original thought, Paul argues, and Paul doesn't say this is from God. He just gives what, what seems to be his opinion at this point and says, this, this place is good. We should not go on. There is danger. It's called Fair Havens. Um, nautical experts tell us that the location that they believe Fair Havens is in is, is largely open to the weather, that it's only slightly protected. And so the, the owner and the captain say, this is not a good place to spend the winter. We will be buffeted when the Northeasterns come along, then, then they will hit it. Paul gives his advice. The centurion ultimately says, we're going to go with what the captain and the owner say. And so they're going to sail on. And this is just just about a 40-mile trip. It isn't far that they have to go, but they're aware that this is a better port that is more surrounded by mountains and trees, and they can, they can hunker down there for the winter. And so Paul's minority viewpoint is dismissed. They leave port. Verse 13 says, as they leave, there's this beautiful southerly wind. All is in their favor. And as far as everybody can tell, this is going to be just a, a sweet several-hour trip and they are going to arrive and be settled in, and all is good, and Paul will be proven wrong in his opinion. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So this short little jaunt to Phoenix, 
Sounds lovely, doesn't it? You know, a short little cruise to Phoenix. Uh, it, it just completely goes awry. No sooner do they get out of the port with the morning sun shining and the southerly wind blowing, then this storm comes in across Crete from the north, almost as if from behind them, and across the mountains. And it is just a devastating storm. We get our English word typhoon from the Greek word that Paul used here when it says, or Luke used here when it says tempestuous wind. We get typhoon from that. This is a brutal storm that came up suddenly. The, the mountains that provide shelter can also help accelerate when there's a storm, when the wind comes across the mountains and just stirs up the air. And so it is just buffeting this ship. It comes across Crete crashes into their ship, and it is like a hurricane. And almost immediately, this serene trip is now just a nightmare. They are being pushed further and further out to sea. They are like a toy at this point. Um, no control over what they're doing. They're just getting pushed further away with no ability to direct the ship. It says they passed by a small island that was about 23 miles from where they had started, gave just enough of a reprieve from the wind that they were able to take some sort of emergency actions. The, the lifeboat is brought in and tied up. There's some undergirding of the ship, which nautical people say could be like heavy sort of ropes that are brought around the front and wrapped underneath the ship to, to just add some stability because of the fear of it breaking up, of it being battered so badly, and just to add some security. Dropping the gear is, is lowering the gear is either an anchor that's put to sort of drag and, and slow it down, or it's the idea that they took the yard, the, the horizontal beam that would help when, the, when there was no wind and they needed to unfurl the sail, that the, the yard would have been just a very heavy beam, and it's possible that they lower that and even get rid of it, as it says. They're getting rid of gear at this point because they don't need it, and all that they're trying to do right now is get rid of weight and stop as they crash up and down the destruction of the ship. They're also, it says, desperately trying to to keep the ship from going too far to the south. The Sirtis, as it says, that's the coast of North Africa, which was considered a sailor's graveyard because of all just shallow area and shoals and sandbars. That was about 400 miles away. You have to believe this crew knew that that was still a long distance away, and yet this storm is that bad that they are convinced that they could get pushed down to North Africa at the rate they're going by how bad the storm is at this point. They are desperate to just try to slow their movement down. So verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Three days into the storm, and, it, and it's just desperation time. It is not yielding, and so they are taking more of the ship's heaviest gear, and they are simply throwing it overboard. It will make it, if the weather should abate in some way, it will make it much more difficult to manage the ship, but at this point, they're not even thinking about that. They're just thinking, this is our only shot at surviving this, is to try to lessen the load on this ship every time it comes down on the waves. And so this is just sheer desperation. They are trying to keep this boat from, from being battered to pieces. All this time, it says, they have no sun or stars. The storm is so bad that it is like perpetual night, and that is their navigational aids. I mean, that's what they depend on are the sun and the stars to know where they are, to know where they are going. So, so they have literally no sense at this point 
of, of where they are floating, somewhere around the Mediterranean into the Adriatic, and on, on the map you see in your notes, it's sort of right, the storm sort of in the middle between the two. Um, it, they are just lost, and, and even Luke acknowledges there in verse 20 that for all of us at this point, there was a sense that we were not going to survive this. No gear, no navigation. We are just waiting for when this ship finally just takes its last and, and we go down with it in the middle of nowhere where nobody even knows where we are. The Christian Standard Bible on verse 20 says, finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. This carries on, we'll see later in the text, for two weeks. This is two, not, not just these three days, this is two terrifying weeks of being lost in the dark, in the storm, waiting for your life to end just horrible. Have you ever been in, 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 in a situation where you just, you felt like you were just in the middle of a dark storm? Like the circumstances of your life are such that it just had you in despair, that there was just, it felt hopeless. You, you, you dread the next day because it, it, you, you don't see any possibility of things getting any better than they are. You don't see a way ahead. Life feels completely out of control because even in the places we, we know as believers, ultimately God rules, but yet we still, we still want to have what we think is some, some sort of control over our day and our calendar. And, and this is the point where you, you've got zero. You, you can't do anything. Completely out of control. Everything seems to have gone wrong and hope is fading. What do you do in the midst of this? Verse 21 says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Let me pause there a minute. Temptation is to say, wow, Paul, that's a little bit of a rough timing for the I told you so moment, because that's sort of what that sounds like. Guys, I'm here to tell you that if you had listened to me, this, this wouldn't have happened. Remember again, when he said that in verse 10, he did not say God directed that. This is Paul's counsel based on years of seagoing trips and traveling himself. And, and he had said, I think if we do this, it's likely to lead to loss of cargo, maybe loss of ship, which of course means loss of life. And, and that's the considered opinion of a guy who has had some experience. Remember, 2 Corinthians was written before this, and so when he, in 2 Corinthians, describes the litany of things that he had suffered, and he says in 2 Corinthians 11.25 that he had been shipwrecked three times and spent a night and a day in the open water, that, that's not including this account. This had been repeated times before that Paul had experienced shipwreck, and so when he speaks and says, Guys, I don't think this is a good idea. He's not just some amateur traveler reading the, the reviews on trips.com or something like that. He's saying, I, I just don't think this is smart. But this isn't really an I told you so. This is Paul establishing credibility. I said that. I was right. But here's why I'm telling you why, that. Because I, he's essentially establishing his authority to what he says next. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. 
there's the reason for saying, you should have listened to me the first time. I, I'm not some foolish traveler here. Because now he's going to tell them something that sounds even more astounding. I just saw an angel, an angel from the God whom I worship, to whom I belong, and he has come with a message from God that I am getting to Rome, I am testifying before Caesar, and by his grace, you're all going to make it on this trip with me. He has granted all of you to survive this with me. It won't be easy, but not a life will be lost. In the end, the ship will run aground on some island, but we will all be there. Again, put yourself in, in, in the sandals of the, the folks on this ship, who two weeks of disorienting, dark, terror, now you've got a guy who's saying, an angel told me, and that seems even more unbelievable, and you're not convinced that's possibly true, and he's saying, it's all good. There's no threat here. We're, we're okay. You can imagine at this point, the response was probably not overwhelming, sort of breathe a sigh of relief, and Paul says it's all good, so it's all good, because they're still in the midst of the storm. So verse 27, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Fathom is about outstretched arms, about six feet, so 120 feet, and then they gradually realize that it, it's getting better, it's getting more shallow. Alistair Begg makes the point here that, that if you want it to, and, and certainly in our area, much more than out in his in Cleveland, you could, you could bring up a little military rivalry here at this point. It's the sailors who are apparently abandoning ship, and it's the soldiers who say, oh, no, you're not. Paul has essentially told them that God said this is a one-for-all, all-for-one sort of deal. We all must stay together. We get saved as a package deal in this, and so they can't take the lifeboat and put it down and flee in the middle of the night. And so the soldiers, it, it may perhaps be an overreaction. It doesn't seem like the most prudent thing to do, which to cut the lifeboat away and say, be gone and, and hope for the best at that point. But they do what they can to make sure that nobody leaves that ship. So verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough... They lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck, remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. 
The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that they were all brought safely to land. Chapter 28 tells us that the island on which they, they ran aground was the island of Malta. That is miraculous that they hit Malta. Daryl Bach writes, it is amazing that the only island for them to hit, given where they are and where they are headed, is Malta. It would be like finding a needle in a haystack. Think of the islands that they've already sailed around, the size of Cyprus, 3,500 square miles. Crete, 3,200 square miles. Huge, right? Malta is 122 square miles in size. For reference, Fairfax County is just over 400 square miles. You are in the middle of a sea, and you managed to hit that tiny little island. Had you gone in any direction, even the slightest bit, off of the course that God puts you on. Remember, he even says that they untie the rudders. Essentially, they've tied the rudders and, and said, we're, we're just giving way to wherever the sea and the wind takes us at this point. We're not trying to steer this thing. And, and, and Malta's um, 50 miles south of Sicily. So you've got water above it. You've got the whole sea below it. They miss it by even just the littlest. And they are out to sea for days, if not weeks to come, now heading into winter. And God, by his grace, puts them right on that tiny little island. And all 276 of them, it says, spent three months there being cared for by the generosity of the people on the island who were kind. Paul, it says in chapter 28, in fact, we can look there for just a second, even went to the home of one who was called the chief man of the island. If you look down at 28 verse 7, it says, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And stop there. We'd go all the way down if we took the time, but down to verse 14, which tells how they, they safely got to Rome, that, the, that this, this story took them to Rome. We're, we're going to come back to more of chapter 28 next week, but what, what an incredible journey. I mean, they are, they are doomed at numerous points on this trip. All is lost. Hope is lost. This is a journey that the crew, the people, the passengers, everybody that's been on this ship will never forget. This was the one where they all know they should have died. All hope had faded, shrouded in darkness, no idea where they are, somewhere floating out in the middle of the Adriatic Sea. Those who know the, the navigation know that there are no other islands, there's no other body of land that they're gonna hit unless they get pushed into something that is far, far away, completely lost. Hope fading, the Ship certainly expected to sink. Darkness, lost. And what did Paul do? Paul listened for God's word. He listened for God to speak to him. He trusted when God spoke. He, he believed what God said. He obeyed in response to that. 
He, he doesn't then simply um, sit back and, and let it all go. Certainly, he takes, takes part in the, in the wise precautions that the crew takes. He urges them. He cares for them. Eat. You, you, you can't lose your strength. There's more to come. We're going to live through this thing. You need to have your strength. You need to eat. And then he even he gives thanks. And he glorifies God by serving others. In the middle of despair and darkness and being lost at sea on a ship with some 200 men who had, who had given up any hope in the bleakest of situations, Paul listened for the voice of God. Paul listened for reassurance from God. He didn't think it strange that an angel appeared to him and, and spoke God's word to him. Paul was ready to receive whatever God said to him. And there in the middle of the storm, as it's raging, Paul runs out to the, the crew and to everybody and says, Take heart. The God to whom I belong and the one I worship has spoken to me. He is going to save all of us. He hears God's word and he believes it. He says, the ship will run aground on an island, but I have faith that it will be exactly as my God has said. I, I am sure of this. In fact, I, I would point out to you in verse 23, it says, this very night the angel appeared. In other words, Paul, the angel appears to him and he doesn't sit and go, ah, oh, well, that, that's really something I'll... I should wait and pray about this or think about this. This very night, the angel appeared, which, which leads me to think that Paul leaves wherever he is and immediately goes out onto the deck and says, hey, I just seen an angel. Oh, really? And God spoke. And I believe that it will go exactly as he says. And so he said to them, do not be afraid. Who, who says, do not be afraid? in the middle of this kind of disaster. Can you imagine someone saying that to you? You are in the middle of a dark, terrifying storm. You have no visible path of escape. There's no reason to be optimistic. And they say, do, do not be afraid. This will end well. It's all good. Paul listened and he immediately believed and he acted on that faith. And he quickly urges others to do the same. Believe what God has said. Trust him. Take heart. In fact, he's concerned about them. He wants them to rest. He wants them to eat. He wants them to regather their strength. Because God had promised Paul he would get to Rome to testify. And in the midst of the storm, he comes back to Paul and says it again. Paul, I know hope is fading on this ship, but I've already said you're going to Caesar. And not only are you going, but everybody will survive this trip. Paul clung to that promise like the proverbial dog on a bone. I mean, that was, he believed it with his entire being. I belong to this God. I worship this God. I am his. And so I believe it. What promises do you cling to? What promises of God come through your mind when the darkness is sort of coming in, when the despair is sort of moving on you, when the circumstances are, are starting to press and you're feeling like you you don't have control, you're being pushed around. It's like you're out at sea and it just feels like disaster. What, what promises start, start cycling through your heart and give you peace and comfort in those moments? Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. I, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you, he says to his disciples. 
In me you have peace. Take heart, in the world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. And so he says, you'll have peace. Rest in me. I will build my church. Nothing will prevail against it. Jesus prayed at one point in the closing chapters of John for that all who would, would believe in him, that, that our union in Christ would be a testimony to the world of how Jesus loves us. That they would see, as, as I am in you and they are now in us, they would see that I love them, this affection for them. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And then Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and take you to be with me. We could go on and on, right, with, with these promises, these sorts of truths that Scripture proclaims to us again and again that this is who you are in Christ. This is what you have being joined to Christ. This is where you stand in Christ. This is what your hope is in Christ. We, we have promises from God that remind us and assure us promises that, that we can not only rest in but testify to, just as Paul does with this, this pagan crew and come and say, my God, the one whom I belong to, is going to rescue. We can testify to the promises of God in the midst of the worst of storms. The awful and the dark ones, the ones that feel like they've gone on for too long, not one of them will be the end of the story. Not one of those storms will define who I am or how this ends. None of those storms. Those are, those are circumstances through which we walk. It is the promises of God that we rest in. We who have turned from our sins and put our faith fully in Jesus Christ can hear Jesus Christ saying, don't, don't fear the one who can only kill the body. No, don't fear that one. It's, it, you want to be right with the God who is the judge over all of man. And if you are right with him, what's there left to fear? In Isaiah 41, verse 10, God said, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. A few verses later, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, for I am the one who helps you. Amen. Trust him, right? In the midst of the storms, we have God's word. He is our help. He is our refuge. And we can walk by faith in his promises. We can testify to others of the validity of those promises and know that we will walk this earth until the day that he calls us into his glorious presence for eternity. Paul listened. He believed. He obeyed. But that, that absolute trust in God's sovereignty didn't cause him to just then become sort of an uncaring fatalist. Paul still loves the people around him. Paul's still using what, what, what time is left, what opportunity he has to serve the guys on the boat. Hey, guys, eat. Be encouraged. When they get to Malta, he is, he is healing people. He knows of one who is sick, and he goes to his home, and he heals, and others come. And in the power of God, he's, he's serving God. All the while on the ship, we don't other than that one verse where he uses to get credibility, which probably should have listened to me, Paul's not criticizing their desperation. He's not criticizing the actions that they're taking to save it. In fact, we, we would presume from the way Luke describes this that a lot of these instances of throwing heavy gear overboard probably entail everyone. This is probably an all-hands-on-deck sort of effort, and so they are all participating side-by-side side in trying to save the ship. 
Even in our darkest, most grievous, most painful, most sick, most hopeless of moments, we need to keep doing the, the basic things. We need to, to, to do the next thing, right? Eat, sleep, medicine's been prescribed, Take the medicine. If there's others around you in despair, help them. Do practical things. Come alongside them. Get up and still seek to, to, to glorify God as, as, as best you're able in that. This is, this is just Paul as, as he's telling them to eat, just exercising wisdom and not giving up. I know, my, I know my God lives, I know he's in control, but, but I need to take care of the basic necessities and do what I can to be a wise and good steward of the circumstances I'm in and the body that he's given me. And when I'm out of strength and feel like I can't do anything, then I ask for help. That's when I rely on other people to come alongside and I cry out to them to, to provide help. You take this just to, to Malta and, and to the degree Paul is able, he is serving God. Sick people need help, and Paul relies on the power of God to serve them. I would submit to you again that in our deepest, darkest storms, the temptation is almost always to turn inward, to sort of not want to be bothered, to not want to deal with other things, to, to, to sort of be in this sadness and this place. And I would say again by Paul's example, I, I think we're, we're called to still look outward, to still look for ways to, to glorify God, to exalt his name, to serve others, to help, to still exert energy and passion and loving others and loving God. And that scene where he breaks the bread and gives thanks obviously reminds us immediately of the, the image of communion. And there's Paul in front of this group. They've decided to take food. And Paul says, this is, this is God's food. This is God's provision. And he gives thanks. He testifies again to the goodness of God and seeks to glorify God wherever he is. Because God's promises are still true. This is not the end. There is always hope for we who trust in Jesus Christ feels only appropriate to me to end in, in Hebrews chapter 6 where that nautical imagery comes back around. It's the passage that's describing the certainty of God's promises, talking about how God made promises to Abraham and, and, and God cannot lie, God cannot change. And so we can believe his promises in the course of, of the writer of Hebrews instructing us to rest in God's promises and God's truth. And it reminds us there that we who have fled to him for refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us because we have this sure and steadfast hope that is like an anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That, that anchor, that's the, the, the clearest picture the, the writer of Hebrews could give of saying, you are already firmly held in this place where you are going. You have, you have already, in, in God's eyes, come behind the inner place and you are anchored in Christ. Jesus has gone before us. He is our reigning King and Lord and Savior, and so we should have hope. We are, as it were, anchored to heaven. And so regardless of what this life brings, what, where this storm ends, our hope is in Him, and He holds us in His grip in the worst of storms. Even when we can't see ahead, even when we feel completely out of control, even when we have no idea What's going to come with the next dawn? 
Our Savior's word is sure. Our final rest in Christ, for you who are trusting in Jesus as Savior, your final rest in Christ is certain. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, and we must cling to that. This will end well. And so for as long as we have breath, let us thank him, let us testify to him, let us believe him, let us serve him, and glorify him with what he's given us. Let's pray. Lord God, it is, it is your character and your nature that make this all matter to us, that make this all sustainable and not just wishful thinking. It is the fact that you who spoke this creation into existence, who upholds it by the power of your hand, who promised a redeemer for sins and sent your son, who promises that there is an eternity for all who, all who trust in you and a, an eternal hope. We rest all of that on our belief that you are an unchanging God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That, that is our delight. That is the, that's what gives us such a, a sure confidence that when we leave here, we don't know what lies before us, in the day ahead, out on 95, what, what, what the week brings, what the doctor says, what the call, what the, what the job has in store, what the boss says when he calls us in, what, what struggle there is going on at home. Lord, so many things that so many brothers and sisters here could, could think of in this moment of areas where it, it, it feels like there's darkness wanting to creep in. It feels like there's a sense of not having control not being able to direct things the way that we would desire. But Lord, we let us be like, like Paul, who in the middle of the night cry out, take heart. We, we trust you, God. We trust that, that this is all in your good plan, that your promises are good and real and true and lasting. Thank you that even as, we've, even as we've talked this morning, one of our brothers who's, who's moving to another area, we don't, don't know when we'll cross paths again, but we know this, that all who are in Christ, Lord, we have a glorious reunion that awaits us one day when we will be in your presence because this will end well for all here who are trusting in Christ. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone listening this morning who is just not there, they, they don't have that hope, death Darkness scares them and frightens them. They are unsure of what would happen if they took their last breath today. I pray, Lord, that today your spirit would, in kindness and grace, draw them to see that there is a way to have hope. It is by turning from sin and trusting fully in Jesus Christ. By believing that the Savior lived a perfect life, died on the cross, taking our sins on himself, experiencing the judgment they deserve, dying and then rising victorious from the grave. And now we, we believe and are convinced that that same Lord and Savior is coming again, coming to rule and reign, coming for his people, and we eagerly anticipate that day. In the meantime, we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, strengthen us for service, for testimony, 
for thanksgiving, for glorifying you. Help us to be good stewards of what we have left. Help those here this morning who, even as, as we're saying these things and looking at the story, who are thinking, yes, but my darkness feels so deep right now. Lord, I pray that, that you would bring comfort, that you would bring believers, that they would come alongside and that strength and encouragement and hope would be given where it's needed so that you would build up your body, the body that you have promised to build, and nothing will prevail against it. We pray these things in the name of our coming Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.